0: Hey everyone, today's episode is on miscarriage, so listener discretion is advised.
1: I struggled, I mean, I really couldn't make sense of the logic part of it. I really wanted to know how on earth a good God let these things happen. I just couldn't justify that in my mind, why an all loving, you know, all merciful God would, would let people go through such suffering like this.
2: Do all of your children have a name? Yes, we have Robin, Ariel, Blaze, Casey, Chameleon, and Luca.
3: I don't think that we've done enough in the church to minister to families, to women and men who have lost children due to miscarriage.
0: This is Made for Love, a Catholic podcast about real people living out the call to love. I'm your host, Sarah Perla. On this episode of Mead for Love, two women are going to share their experiences of miscarriage, and a priest will talk about how the church can better help couples through it. I want to preface this with the fact that men certainly suffer when their children are miscarried. There's no doubt about that. And I really regret that I don't have men on the show, because... Well, I failed, (laughs) in terms of scheduling and foresight and, you know, planning ahead. So uh, I'm sorry about that. That will be a missing piece. But we will be talking about how miscarriage affects men and marriages. First of all, do you know how common miscarriage is? One in four pregnancies ends in miscarriage, and up to 75% of those happen within the first 12 weeks. That's why a lot of people don't tell anyone that they're pregnant until after the three-month mark. Leah Labresco-Sergeant, on the other hand, wants people to know.
2: One of the reasons my husband and I have been pretty open about our miscarriage is just for us, it's much more stressful to not be. Um, It's hard to kind of go around your day either recently in mourning for a child, or in some cases for us, who have had ectopic pregnancies, So just with the uncertainty of what was going to happen next, I had a card I was carrying telling someone to call 911 if there had been a, an emergency, and to, to do all that and not have the support of your friends and family because you're not telling them, because the idea is that it's private or secret or that you're not allowed to talk about pregnancy until you're out of first trimester is exhausting and really difficult. So, the primary reason we're open about our miscarriages is, is just for us.
0: Leah is a Catholic convert from atheism and author of books on prayer and hospitality. I'm Leah Labreska Sargent, and my husband and I got married in 2016.
2: And you know, since we've been married, we've unfortunately lost six children through miscarriage.
0: Leah and her husband, Alexei, believe that letting people know about their miscarriages is part of being a real community.
2: What is good about it is it really lets our friends and family care for us. And when I talk about it more openly and broadly, it's because it's true. Um, and to kind of not talk about my children and about our family isn't, for me, an honest way of living in the world. And When people kind of expect that, families hide that. I don't think that's fair to them.
0: The sergeants have experienced a lot of different kinds of loss, as they've sought to enlarge their family. From
2: Pregnancies that seemed like they were going well and we were really, after the first pregnancy, kind of always nervous but more hopeful and then really being caught by surprise to find out there was a problem in an ultrasound or pregnancies where we knew from right at the beginning with our third child that something had gone wrong and we never kind of knew exactly what it was. It became more and more mysterious as things went by.
0: This means that there were six times that Leah and Alexi were on a kind of cycle of hope and grief. And sometimes the physical impact of the miscarriage meant that there was barely a moment to process the loss at the time.
2: In the one case, we thought we went to the doctor to confirm that we were going to lose the baby because we'd had that blood test results, and it was when we got the ultrasound. We thought just to confirm the miscarriage that the doctor told us, that our baby was ectopic, and I had to go get surgery that day. I didn't even want to get the surgery that day because I just wanted more time to just be sad and not also have to deal with a medical problem for me.
0: Now, I know you'd like to believe that professional OBGYNs would be trained to be sensitive to patients with these kinds of situations. Not so much.
2: For a first miscarriage, you know, a doctor who, you know, in trying to reassure us is telling us not to be upset because this early it doesn't count. Um, you told me to stop crying, uh, right after delivering the news. And then we switched doctors and the new doctor was not better. Um, where when I was getting my first ultrasound for the subsequent pregnancy, I was crying again just because the last ultrasound I'd gotten mm-hmm. had been telling us her baby had died. And the doctor's like, what are you crying about? Don't cry. And she knew I had a miscarriage. And just never seem to think about the fact
0: that this was upsetting. <laughs> Telling someone not to cry. Does that ever work? I mean, like, does anyone ever say, like, oh, you're right. I shouldn't be crying. What was I thinking? Luckily, the doctor you go to is one thing that you can exercise some control over sometimes.
2: So we switched to a Catholic practice for our subsequent pregnancies. And we're with a doctor who cares about our babies, prays with us, and we are been really happy going to the Gianna Center for that reason.
0: Another thing about miscarriage that people may not be aware of is? The physical act of miscarrying takes a while.
2: So if you hear from your friend that they just found out that their baby has died, um, they may still be in the process physically of losing their baby up to a month later. It wasn't a singular event the way it is when a grown-up person dies.
0: And you don't need to tiptoe around it. Most miscarriages
2: aren't anyone's fault. They're unpredictable, they're bad luck. Some people have underlying conditions which can still take a bit of work to figure out, but a lot of people will just have a miscarriage for no particular reason uh, with nothing they could have done differently.
0: We'll hear more from Leah in a bit. Now I'm going to introduce you to Laura. I'm Laura
1: Kelly Fanuci. And I've written a book with my husband on miscarriage called Grieving Together, A Couple's Journey Through Miscarriage. And that shares the story of some of what we've been through in our marriage with infertility and miscarriage. And then we had twin daughters who died shortly after their birth.
0: Laura and her husband Franco have been through so much and have turned these tragedies into a ministry.
1: Often when I go out in parishes and I talk about this, I will have many, especially women, but couples come up to me afterward who are much older and will say, nobody talked about this when we lost our babies. Nobody ever asked. The doctor just whisked the baby away, wouldn't let us see our child. Nobody talked about it. There was so much silence and
0: shame. Much of what the Fanucci's book talks about is the grief process.
1: It really does affect both men and women. I think that we tend to assume that the mother must be grieving more, that maybe the father wasn't connected to the baby because he wasn't physically carrying the child. And yet, so much research shows and so many stories of couples that I've talked to confirms for me that fathers experience this as a deep loss. And yet, it becomes a very complicated grief for them because they don't necessarily
0: have an outlet for it. It's not acknowledged. Just as in any other situation of death or loss, people grieve differently.
1: We often categorize it as women grieve differently and men grieve differently. And there is a lot of truth to that, that just the way we're socialized in our culture, you know, what's an appropriate way for a woman to grieve or an appropriate way for a man to grieve? We get those signals, even as children, right? But I think overall, we really learned that there's so many factors that play into how people grieve differently. It can be your temperament, your personality. You know, introverts and extroverts grieve really differently. Introverts might not want to talk about it. They might want to just curl up under the covers, read a book, watch a movie. They just kind of need to burrow in, be sad, and not talk about it. An extrovert might want to tell you the whole story and then tell it again and tell it again, and that's how they're working through it. It also might be, you know, what is their past experience of loss? Is this someone who has been through a lot in their life? And how have they processed that loss and trauma? Or is this something really brand new and shocking? You know, this is happening to someone who has never gone through something this difficult. And they're just sort of bowled over and don't know how to respond.
0: And grief can manifest in weird ways.
1: And a lot of times, father's grief comes out you know, months or years later down the road and it can just sort of erupt in really surprising ways because they have suffered the loss of that child. Like the mother, they've been dreaming of and planning for this baby for the moment they they found out that they were going to be a father to this child. And I've heard fathers say, it wasn't until somebody else in my life died, you know, my grandma or aunt or something like that, and, and all of a sudden I realized the depths of what I had lost too. And I just kind of lost it at that funeral and nobody could understand why I was such a mess, but it was actually, I was grieving for that baby too. And so I think to remember that while miscarriage affects men and women differently, it definitely still affects the dad. So to remember to reach out to fathers and just,
0: you know, ask how they're doing, give them a chance to say how they're feeling. One of the things that Laura noticed about the aftermath of miscarriage And one of the reasons I feel extra guilty about not interviewing any men for this podcast is
1: I had a lot of women in my life who just rallied around me and supported me and shared their own stories of loss with me. And he had almost none of that from from his friends or from men in his life. Yeah. Sorry, guys. And we really found that we had to work on communicating with each other about what we were feeling about what we needed, had to extend a lot of grace to each other to just forgive when we misunderstood each other or when, you know, one of us was just in a bad mood and wasn't going to rally around that day. It was challenging because it felt like a loss that we had shared most deeply, right? I mean, we were the parents of this child, and we felt the loss of this baby most deeply And yet, as a mother and as a father, we responded to that grief in really different ways. So it was challenging, and it took a lot of time and prayer and conversation to try to grow deeper in love with each other through that and and deeper in our faith and trying to trust God through that. It's not something that happens overnight, and so I think each couple has to learn, you know, how are we going to get through this together? How are we going to navigate this? And it can be really challenging. It takes a lot of time.
0: One of the things Laura wants to communicate to people is that every life really matters, no matter how little he or she is.
2: We
1: can assume sometimes that because a loss was early in a pregnancy... That might mean it's easier to get over.
0: You know, you didn't know this baby for that long, right? So that should be something you'd be over in a couple of months. Sometimes people think that as long as a couple is able to have a child eventually, that's what matters. But it's much more complicated than that emotionally. We were able to go on and conceive again, you know, not long after our
1: miscarriage. And so our third son, I, I look at him sometimes and he is so full of joy. He is so full of love. He's just just like a radiant kid with joy and love. And I think it is astonishing to me to try to hold in tension this idea that you might not be here if that other baby had lived. I can't imagine a world without you. You have such a necessary place in our family, and you have brought so much joy to us. And so how can I be so grateful for that and never want to change that? and yet also still be sad about that baby we lost. I I don't know how. I mean, that's just a mystery to hold that intention to somehow say, I want both of those at the same time. I want both of those to be true. And so, I mean, I just hold on to the fact that whatever that reunion will be like in heaven when we're all together again, I think, wow, that's going to be beyond my imagining to have All my children there, who on this earth could not have existed together at the same time, that will be, I pray, such an incredible blessing.
0: Laura's third little boy wouldn't exist if his sibling had lived. And just because a a couple goes on to conceive, you know, they, they never will forget that child they lost
1: in miscarriage.
0: This should be obvious, right? But else to get it, you never got to meet the child, so his or her irreplaceability is harder to conceptualize. Here's Leah again. I think
2: when folks aren't sure how to react, they should just ask, because folks say a lot of things that are terrible, and I think, like, across the board, terrible. Like, you're so young, you'll have another, um, which is awful. You would never say that to someone who had lost a child who had been born. Um, and you shouldn't say it to someone who's had a miscarriage because they've lost a child. The fact that they can have more is not really that comforting. Telling people, you know, that you're sure it will work out in time isn't a promise you can make. Again, so I don't think it's as comforting as people think.
0: The temptation is always to say, don't worry, I'm sure you'll have kids. Or, have you checked out progesterone?
2: When people just overload you with advice of any kind, like folks who have had miscarriages have already done a fair amount of medical research, you know, and may just want to be sad in this moment.
0: Leah has appreciated all that her friends and family have done to support them.
2: Some folks brought us food, which is lovely. People sent us flowers, which is really kind. Um, but after a couple of miscarriages, when folks were sending flowers, uh, it made me it made me unhappy because it just felt like this terrible thing was happening to me again and again. And now I have flowers instead of a baby. <laughs> and obviously, that's really hard to predict. I didn't know I felt that way until I just felt really angry at the faces. So I don't think my friend did anything wrong. Um, but in that moment, I just really didn't want flowers, and that surprised me how strongly I felt.
0: Here are a couple of ideas for ways to support your wife, friend, or family member.
2: No, you know, and Alexi really takes care of me through that whole time and thinks about what we can do together. After one of the times when we just got bad news, I remember he just made up little coupons for me to, like, go to a restaurant I loved and other things so that he could just how much she wanted to take care of me. A friend asked me what would be comforting and I told him what I wanted to hear from people, which was, I'm really sad I won't get to meet your baby here on Earth. Because that felt like people really entered into our grief and you know acknowledged that us losing a baby affects all of them also, because they would have played with our baby or babysat our baby. Someone might have married the baby <laughs> in the long term. Um, that when we lose a baby, the whole world loses
1: the baby, too. I think the best thing to do is to take your cue from the person who's grieving. So I think as a basic Christian response, the best thing to do, right, is to weep with those who are weeping, to comfort those who mourn. There's a reason that's a core part of our faith, because I think there is a call to reach out to those who are suffering, who are sorrowful. But I think, you know, when you've reached out and just said, I'm so sorry, I love you, I'm here for you, to gauge your response then on what's their response to your words. Do they just seem to say, thanks, I really appreciate it, and don't really want to say much more, then that's fine. Maybe you'll come back to it another time, or maybe you've done enough just in reaching out and letting them know you care. But if they really seem to want to share that story, then they might be ready to have that be part of their healing, just to talk a little bit with someone else about it. But I think just reaching out in whatever way you feel you can do.
0: When Laura and Franco experienced the loss of their twin girls, they had to explain this to their other children. Yeah, Well, I
1: mean, especially with our daughters who were born prematurely and then lived just one in two days, you know, our boys were Old enough that they understood very well what was going on and that mommy was going to the hospital to have the baby. So they have been through a lot with all of that. And I think it has really changed their understanding of what family is and what heaven is. I mean, they're very free in talking about these siblings that they didn't get to meet or hold or see, but they're, you know, they love to talk about like, what they might be doing in heaven or what it's going to be like when we're all together or you can very freely say when strangers will say to us in the grocery store, oh, you've got four boys. One of them will immediately say, yeah, and we have two sisters in heaven who died <laughs> things like that that the grocery store clerk doesn't necessarily know what to do with. But I love, I mean, they really witness back to me a very natural embrace of the living and the dead, of just saying this is not all that there is. What we see here on earth is just a part of what the fullness of life is. And so while it was a really difficult, those losses were very difficult for them to go through as well, I think they have gotten to a place where they also are teaching me and are unafraid to always claim those children as part of our family as well. So that's been a really beautiful witness to the faith of children and to what they teach adults
3: prolonged illness of a child and the uh, and a, a tragedy of of a, of a the death of a young one is an ultimate challenge to a marital relationship.
0: This is Monsignor Sacano, a priest in New York City.
3: Okay, I'm uh, Monsignor Donald Sacano, and I'm currently the pastor of the Basilica of St. Patrick's Old Cathedral and the Shrine Church of the Most Precious Blood here in New York City.
0: In 1993, Monsignor Sacano was the pastor at a church called Holy Innocents, and he decided that the parish's name pointed directly to a ministry that was needed by families. He established a shrine for the unborn, and a monthly mass for families mourning the loss of their unborn children.
3: A lot of people are privately hurting because of an experience that they had, sometimes in the dim past, of a child who died before its birth. And so this gives him an opportunity to meet others and to talk about it finally.
0: The first time these families all came together, Monsignor Sacano knew that it was the Holy Spirit.
3: Yeah, so it was, I don't know how to just describe it, uh, a word to put on the emotion. A uh, certain exhilaration would, would not sound appropriate, but, it, but there was a certain upliftingness to it, frankly, listening to people.
0: He has seen the effects of miscarriage on marriages.
3: It can either break or make that relationship. With eyes of faith, with a Christian outlook to life, it it should strengthen the bond of fidelity and care between uh, husband and wife. And I've seen that more, more often than I have dissension.
0: And he points these couples, and all of us, to the cross.
3: So the eyes of faith is an entirely different way of seeing the world. You know, so it's seeing the world as God would have to see it, and lo and behold, he presented us with an event and an image that's key to Christian faith, the cross, and not an empty cross. I think we Catholics really should reflect on the fact that the Church has always been uh, centered around uh, a crucifix. Dead man, a man suffering—it's—it's—it's it, it, it's defeat, it's ignominy, it's uh, uh, unstoppable sorrow uh, for the world. That's—that's that's what that means. It's everything that the world is not or wants.
0: It is possible for a terrible tragedy to strengthen the bond between husband and wife. Not easy but true.
3: So the Christian needs to be able to stand in front of it, which means stand in front of a child who's died, in your arms, at three months, as cute as can be, with a life that it could have lived, and yet, even then, see the power of God's resurrection and his mercy.
0: Sometimes out of a good desire to remind people that every day is an opportunity to draw closer to God, we end up kind of making the cross into a small thing. Like my cross at this moment is to get this podcast done on time. And that's not untrue, but real suffering comes to all of us, and it's not little.
3: We've become so accustomed to it that that's maybe a problem, I don't know. We've made art out of it, and in some ways glorified it. By making it romantic and, and beautiful. It wasn't beautiful at all. It was ugly and smelly and dreadful. The crucifixion was dreadful in every aspect. Christ did not at all shy away from that it was his message throughout the book's journey to Jerusalem, telling the disciples, Hey you guys, there's a cross up there ahead. Said, no, no, no. Not us. There's gotta be a better way. There's gotta be a better way to the kingdom. Right yes. and and so Christ led them to the cross. They scattered. They weren't even there. The synoptic gospels. They all fled. So it was the power of the resurrection that brought them together and made them the men and women that they became. Went to their own martyr's death, most of them.
0: Monsignor Sicano seeks to help all of us to see with baptized eyes, to see through the cross to the resurrection.
3: I don't deny that it's an ultimate challenge and test, but if you do, if you do pierce that tragedy with eyes of faith and rest on the resurrection, you're set for life. You'll be happy no matter. Happiness is a gift of God. It's a grace that does not alleviate you from pain or misfortune, but it will make you in harmony with God and his purpose and pave a a road to his kingdom.
1: I think that the way we handle miscarriage has a huge impact on our faith because, yes, pregnancy is such a gift and we just rejoice when it happens, when it's this longed-for child, and then suddenly that life is gone. And it's really difficult to make sense of How does a good God allow evil and suffering to happen? What reason could we possibly give for this? Why would God let us suffer? And yet I find looking back, and this is such a mystery to me, that when I look back on these times of great suffering around parenthood in our marriage, like infertility and miscarriage and then infant loss, ironically, I don't think I ever felt closer to God than I did during those times in the day-to-day you know things are going pretty good things are okay it can be easy to just sort of let faith take a back seat I don't need to be bringing these deep crises of faith to God all the time so the strength of that relationship ironically isn't as as strong and as deep as it has been for me during those times of great suffering.
0: One of the things parents inevitably struggle with is the question of where their baby went after death.
1: The theological questions that come up around miscarriage.
0: So, you know, what happened to
1: our baby? Is our baby in heaven if we didn't get to baptize that baby? Is our baby an angel or is our baby a saint? Lots of these questions come up and so we wanted to dive into what does scripture tell us? What does the catechism tell us? Overall, there's such Beautiful comfort, I think, to be found in what the church says about God's great mercy and that we just entrust these children who died before baptism, we entrust them to the great
0: mercy of God. And what a phenomenal statement of faith. And sometimes Leah found that she just needed Alexei to pray for both of them.
2: One of the things that's hard for me is kind of when, when we're pregnant figuring out how to pray, and how to both pray honestly that I want the baby to make it that none of them have so far, and not kind of wind up bargaining with God like a hostage taker, or tipping over into a, a grim sort of resignation. Oh, you know, like, obviously I want the baby to live, but I technically want your will, God, you know. And to, trying to pray honestly and not shrink away from kind of that tension, Sometimes if it's really hard for me, I'll have Alexi pray for the night for both of us. And sometimes there was a bit after, after my surgery from the ectopic pregnancy with Chameleon where it would have been part of our nightly prayer of praying to have a baby we get to meet, which is too upsetting for me to pray while I still had stitches. So I asked Alexi to just pray for it for our family and not pray out loud because so I kept crying every time he did it. And so sometimes I'm kind of just asking someone to take on the prayer. I can't offer this second is what I do. And then I
0: try and return to them when I can. The thing about suffering in a truly Christian way is that it opens you up to other people.
2: Because we've been really public about losing our children.
0: I think people think of us as kind
2: of marked by tragedy or suffering, but often not in a pitying way, in a way that means our friends are more likely to come to us when they themselves are going through something really hard because they think it's not alien to us. Um, and then we get to pray for them and talk to them. And I think that's true of so many more people than folks assume. But the more private our griefs and our suffering are, the more we'll all suffer alone individually. Because we think, oh, well, they're pretty happy. I can't bring this into their life. But I know Lisa's really sad about babies,
0: so I can talk to her when I'm sad. And while the church needs to do more, there are some bright spots. Here's Laura talking about a memorial mass that she and her husband helped to get started.
1: Just at our parish
0: last November,
1: I was blown away by how many people we knew from church that I didn't know they had lost babies like this, some of them three, four, five babies. And I thought, wow, to just see them get up and light a candle for these children to speak their names into this room and to all share in the Eucharist together I will never forget that, and I, I've just really come to see the power of gathering in the Christian community to say, this is who we are as the church, we love and remember these children, we thank God for their lives, and we ask for, you know, the healing grace to, to keep going in faith.
3: I think it's fair to say that church has not done enough in this regard, and it's enormous. It It's enormous in terms of the people who, who have had a stillbirth or a miscarriage. Just don't talk about it.
2: The church really has a lot to offer parents um, who are losing or have lost a child. There's a special blessing in the Book of Blessings. You can have a memorial mass for your baby. So the church has a lot to offer. The main issue, I think, is that people don't know the church has these things. Most folks don't necessarily have a close relationship with their parish priest, so they may not mention they're miscarrying. If you don't know that the Church has blessings and prayers specifically for their situation, and the priest doesn't know that they've lost the baby, then what's going to offer it to them?
0: There's a bunch of material I couldn't fit into this episode, so be sure to check out the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. I'll put links to Laura and Franco's book on grieving, as well as Leah's unrelated books, and a link to the Shrine for the Unborn in New York City. You may have noticed that this episode had some new music in it, and I know it was super dramatic. Um, I'm just playing around at this point trying to learn how to use it well. So let me know what you think, and please leave a review if you like the show. It really helps people to find us. Also, this is the second time I'm recording this whole thing, because the first time for no apparent reason, this is what it sounded like when I was done. If you like what you've heard today, please support this project by sharing it with your friends, subscribing to Made for Love on iTunes, writing a review, or commenting on the show notes at marriageuniqueforareason.org. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter and all those things. This is essentially a one-woman production, so yours truly did everything except for the theme music which is composed and produced by Michael Taylor. And then the new music is from First Comm,